These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another edition of the Greek Myth Files. We're in the middle of season three, and we've been following along in the wake of the famous mythical ship, the Argo, and its crew, the Argonauts. In the last episode, we left our heroes just after they had barely made it through the Symplegades, or Clashing Rocks. In this episode, we'll focus on what happens when they arrive in Colchis and cover the nearly impossible feats that Jason had to overcome to get the Golden Fleece. Will Jason be able to tame and yoke the fire-breathing bulls, plow the giant field of Colchis, overcome the crop of armed men that grow from the earth? And if he does all that, what about the never-sleeping dragon that guards the Golden Fleece? Today's story is one full of attempted diplomacy, suspicion, dastardly challenges, love, and intrigue. So sit back, relax, and take in another edition of the Greek Myth Files. When we left off in our last episode, the Argonauts were shaken up after their terrifying passage through the Clashing Rocks. Helped by the goddess Athena, the Argo had just barely escaped being splintered and flattened by the enormous cliffs which once regularly slammed together, but which now remained fixed in place. Such was prophecy to happen should a ship come to pass through them successfully. Once their hearts stopped pounding, the Argonauts mustered the motivation to keep moving along on their journey along the northern coast of Bithynia, or modern Turkey today. They were, of course, emboldened by the foreknowledge, given to them by the seer Phineas, that they would not face any further trouble on the seas once they passed through the clashing rocks. And so it happened that the Argonauts coasted along, keeping the land to their right as they headed to Colchis. We're not going to go into detail here about their path, but you can see a map of the places that the Argo put into shore on our website, manto-myth.org, which, as usual, has maps and other visual aids to help you sort out the complicated mythical story world. Here, we'll just mention a couple of places where significant events took place. The first occurred about halfway along the coast, at a place called Acherusia, a prominent cape that juts out from the land. This notable landmark features a cliff and a cave that the ancients thought led down into the underworld. In some versions, this is where Heracles had brought up the three-headed dog Cerberus out of the underworld. And it's just one of the many places that the Greeks identified as the path that led down there. But there's another neat tidbit here. Flowing into the sea nearby was a river they called the Acheron, which is the name for one of the traditional rivers in the underworld itself. In other words, this region was associated with death. And this is fitting, since two of the Argonauts lost their lives while staying with the local king. First, Idmon, son of Abbas, or rather the god Apollo. Idmon was a prophet who could tell the future by listening to birds. I know that sounds weird, and it is, but he had learned before the voyage began that he was going to die en route, which would have deterred me, but Idmon chose to join the Argonauts even if it meant his death. And so it came to pass. While out getting some water, Idmon is gored by a boar in the thigh and dies from the wound. And while they grieve his death, more tragedy strikes. The steersman Tiphys dies from a sudden illness. The Argonauts wonder if this is the end of their voyage given the loss of expertise, but another Argonaut with seafaring experience named Anchias steps in to take over. 
under Anchius's steady hand, the Argo continues to sail along the coast, inhabited by a number of peoples that have strange habits or are unfriendly to strangers. The further one gets from Greece, the stranger things become. One of these groups we've met in a previous episode, the Amazons, who dwell along the Thermodon River. The Argonauts only stop here for a hot second before moving along again. They worked quickly so as not to have to face these powerful women, which might result in losing even more Argonauts. It is worth dwelling on the last stop before the Argonauts reach their destination, the so-called Island of Ares. The Argonauts knew that they were in for something strange as the ship drew near the island. A bird from it flew over the ship and let a feather drop. But this was no ordinary feather, for it did not float, but plummeted, and when it struck the shoulder of one of the Argonauts, it created a deep gash. These were sharp feathers, like arrows. Fortunately, another Argonaut patched up the wound, but the crew realized that they had to be on their guard when the birds flew over, raising their shields to protect themselves, and down came feathers clattering like hail. When they finally arrived on the island, they took a play from Heracles' old playbook and banged on their shields noisily, sending the birds fluttering off, leaving the island to themselves. Or so they thought. As it happened, that same night a storm brewed off the coast and unleashed its might on a lone ship that was traveling away from Colchis. On it were the four sons of Phrixus. Their ship was knocked about by the winds and waves, and finally the ship broke apart under them. Holding on to a beam, these four would-be sailors drifted onto the shore, shipwrecked. Listeners of this podcast will remember that Phrixus was the Greek boy who was saved by the golden ram that whisked him off to Colchis. There, he married the king's daughter and had four sons, the ones now washed up on the shore on the island of Ares. Phrixus had long since died, and his sons wanted to return to Greece themselves to obtain their rightful kingdom. But fate and the storm brought them to the island of Ares. From a storytelling point of view, this is a fine touch by the poet Apollonius, since this allows Jason and the Argonauts, not to mention us, a first glimpse of what they might expect in Colchis. When told what the Argonauts were doing, the eldest son, named Argos, of course, responds. My friends, you may rely upon us without fail to help you as best we can in any time of trouble. But I do dread the idea of sailing with you now, for Aedes has it in his power to be a deadly and relentless enemy. He claims to be a son of Helios, the sun god. His Colchian tribesmen are countless, and his terrifying voice and powerful build might well be envied by the god of war himself. No, it would be no easy thing to take the fleece without permission of Aedes, guarded as it is from every side by a massive serpent, a deathless and unsleeping beast, the offspring of Earth herself. She, the Earth, brought him forth on the slopes of the Caucasus mountain by the rock of Tophion. It was there, they say, that Tophion, when he offered violence to Zeus and been struck by his thunderbolt, dropped warm blood from his head, and so made his way to the mountains and plain of Nysa, where he still lies to this day. At the mention of a massive serpent that never sleeps, 
one associated with yet another monstrous dragon, Tofaun, who had threatened even the king of the gods, the Argonauts grew pale. Jason asked himself, what had he gotten the Argonauts into? Here we have a powerful king with a temper and a lot of subjects who would certainly put up a fight. And if they happened to get past those people, there was the unsleeping serpent to deal with as well. Finally, though, they regained their courage, and the Argonauts took the sons of Phrixus on board and started sailing onward to Colchis. Now, Colchis was, in the historical period, a Greek city that had been founded in the 6th century BCE by colonists from the Greek city of Miletus. When the Milesians got there, they probably started to claim that their land was a place that the Argonauts landed. Prior to this point, Jason's mythical voyage was to some purely imaginary place. The mythical place was called Aia, and it may be that the word means something like Dawnland or the East. And the king's name is clearly related to this word. Aietes means something like the man from Aia or the Eastern man. And the mythical river that ran through Aia was called the Phasis, which the scholar Martin West argues is etymologically related to the word for radiance. So the original myth was just a story about the Far East, the land of the dawn. But, like the travels of Odysseus, it was just that, an imaginary geography. But when Greek colonists actually arrived on the scene, they attached the myth of Jason to a real place, their place, Colchis, and the river that ran nearby easily assumed the name Phasis. In fact, there was something of a contest by colonists of several cities on the Black Sea to claim the Phasis as their own, but the one near Colchis eventually won out. Anyways, when the Argonauts approached Colchis and the mouth of the Phasis, they landed in a shrouded area and carefully hid their boat so that Jason could go to the city to meet with King Aetes. It would be a lot less threatening than to show up directly with 50-plus very stout soldiers on a giant ship. And thinking that the sons of Phrixus would be an advantage, Jason took them along with two other Argonauts, Telamon and Algeas, the latter a son of Helios, the son, just like Aetes. For those who want to see the complex genealogies, take a look at our website, manto-myth.org, which includes a family tree, or rather trees. At any rate, Aetes first hosted the guests with food and entertainment, as was customary. Then he turned to business. Surprised that Phrixus's sons had returned, he asked why they were back and who their new friends were. The eldest son, Argos, laid out the events. Their ship had been wrecked by a storm. They were taken in by their godson, Jason, and his crew, who was headed to ask you for the Golden Fleece. Their king back in Greece sent Jason here essentially in the hopes of his dying on the way, but they made it, and Jason was willing to repay Aetes for the fleece by helping him defeat his hostile neighbors. And they can do it, too, for all the Argonauts were either sons or grandsons of the gods. Aetes, however, thought that it was a sham, a trick. They were after his kingdom, he reasoned, and this was just a bunch of nonsense to bilk him of his prized possession, the fleece. Children of the gods, huh, that's BS. He, Aetes, was the son of the sun and had ridden on the chariot across the sky. These puny characters could hardly be the offspring of gods. Although Aetes had a mind to kill them right on the spot, he settled instead on a sort of elaborate plot, a sort of villain puts James Bond in a slow dipping mechanism into a pool of sharks. I propose to test your courage and abilities by setting you a task which, though formidable, is not beyond the strength of my two hands. 
Grazing on the plain of Ares, I have a pair of bronze-footed and fire-breathing bulls. These I yoke and drive over the hard fallow of the plain, quickly plowing a four-acre field up to the ridge at either end. Then I sow the furrows, not with seed, but with the teeth of a monstrous serpent, which presently sprout in the form of armed men whom I cut down and kill with my spear as they rise up against me on all sides. It is morning when I yoke the team, and by evening I have done all my harvesting. That is what I do. If you, sir, can do as well, you may carry off the fleece to your king's palace on that very same day. If not, then you shall not have it. Do not deceive yourself. It would be wrong for a brave man to truckle to a coward. When Jason heard this test of strength and bravery, his heart sank. But what could he do? If he wanted to get the fleece, he'd have to consent to Aiti's challenge. If not, he'd have to slink off somewhat disgracefully and, what, return home after traveling so far through so many obstacles? So Jason consented to the task, unsure how he'd be able to defeat fire-breathing bulls and soldiers that grew out of the ground fully armed. It all seemed, however, so impossible. And yet the gods, or rather goddesses, had a plan to ensure that Jason could complete his quest for the Golden Fleece. Worried about Jason, Hera visited with her sometimes rival Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, and convinced her to enlist her son, the impudent boy god Eros, also known as Cupid from the Latin, to help. If only he would cause the king's younger daughter, Medea, to fall for the handsome newcomer, Jason. She could help him complete the task, since she had some special skills that we'll get to in the next segment. When struck with the arrow of Eros, Medea is helplessly attracted to the stranger, a young woman of budding sexuality finding a newcomer, a handsome stranger, the object of her attention. Even so, the pull of her family is almost equally as strong. Is she really going to forsake her family for someone she doesn't know? Apollonius's epic poem paints a rather realistic psychological portrait of a young woman torn between devotion to her family and hometown and the appeal of a stranger who offers something new and exciting. But even in an earlier version of the tale, centuries earlier, Aphrodite is portrayed as teaching Jason how to seduce Medea with slick words and promises. It seems part of the myth itself. Now, one might be wondering how Medea, a young woman perhaps 13 or 14 years old, might be of help to Jason in his quest to overcome fire-breathing bulls and so on. Well, as it happens, Medea has some cunning skills and is really good at potion-making and spells. We would call her a witch, but that has a lot of negative baggage, so perhaps sorcerer would be a more appropriate term. At the core of her powers is her ability to control the natural world, specifically herbs and plants that, if properly understood, can become powerful tools to help or to harm. She is a devotee of the goddess Hecate, who in the earliest period was a very important and powerful goddess, but eventually became the goddess associated with magic and potions and nighttime. Hecate also became closely associated with Selene, the moon, and Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. 
Through her knowledge of plants and herbs, Medea has just the thing to protect Jason, an ointment that, when properly applied after a religious ritual, would make him impervious to things like fire and sword and, on top of that, give him some supernatural strength. So they met privately, and Jason, after promising to honor Medea back in Greece, received the ointment. When the day of the challenge arrived, he tested it out. Meanwhile, Jason, remembering Medea's instructions, melted the magic drug and sprinkled his shield with it, and his sturdy spear, and his sword. His comrades watched him and put his weapons to the test with all the force they had, but they could not bend his spear at all. Then Jason sprinkled his own body and was imbued with a miraculous, indomitable might. As his hands increased in power, his very fingers twitched, like a warhorse eager for battle, pawing the ground, neighing, pricking its ears, and tossing up its head in pride. He exulted in the strength of his limbs. Soon it was time for the first part of the test, the fire-breathing bulls. Confident in the ointment he had gotten from Medea, he set off to face his first challenge. And now... From somewhere in the bowels of the earth, from the smoky stronghold where they slept, the pair of bulls emerged, breathing flames of fire. The Argonauts were terrified at the sight. But Jason, planting his feet apart, stood to receive them as a reef in the sea confronts the tossing billows in a gale. He held his shield in front of him, and the two bulls, bellowing loudly, charged and butted it with their strong horns. But he was not shifted from his stance, not even an inch. The bulls snorted and spurted from their mouths, devouring flames. The deadly heat assailed him on all sides with the force of lightning. But he was protected by Medea's magic. Seizing the right-hand bull by its horn, he dragged it with all his might towards the yoke, and then brought it down to its knees with a sudden kick to its bronze foot. Soon Jason had subdued the other bull and began plowing the giant field, scattering the serpent's teeth into the furrows, the ones that would grow into armed men. This specific part of the story, the sowing of serpent's teeth, which sprout and develop into armed men in the space of but a few hours, is also found in another myth. That other myth has to do with the foundation of the Greek city Thebes, where the hero Cadmus arrives in the area and has to defeat a huge serpent to secure a water source. Doing so, he takes part of the teeth and sows them, and just as in our story, our men start to sprout up. He throws a rock into the middle of them, and thinking that they are being attacked by each other, the sprouted armed men fight amongst themselves. In that story, five survive and become the leading citizens of the new city of Thebes. Some ancient authors say that the teeth that Aetes gave to Jason were the other half from the serpent that Cadmus had killed, an explanation that was probably prompted by the similarity of the storylines. At any rate, Jason barely had time to refresh himself with some water when the soil started to stir. By now, the earthborn men were shooting up like grain in all parts of the field. The deadly war god's sacred field bristled with stout shields, double-pointed spears, and glittering helmets. Indeed, this army springing from the earth shone out like the full congregation of stars piercing the darkness of a murky night, when snow lies deep 
and the winds have chased the wintry clouds away. But Jason did not forget the advice he had gotten from Medea of the many wiles. He picked up from the field a huge round boulder, a formidable quoit that Ares might have thrown, but four strong men together could not have budged it from its place. Rushing forward, he hurled it far away from the earthborn men, then crouched behind his shield, hiding. Again, Medea's help was crucial in figuring out how to defeat the earthborn men. She was the one who suggested that he do so, and it worked. The armed men who had grown from the serpent's teeth started to attack each other. Jason let the melee continue until there were but a few left, at which point he then leapt out like a bright meteor and mowed them down like an experienced reaper. Jason, with Medea's help, had won the day. Having accomplished these three impossible feats, the fire-breathing bulls, the giant field, and the earth-born men, Jason returned back to the Argo. The Argonauts felt buoyant, but while Jason and his crew celebrated as night deepened, King Aetes seethed. He had no intention of giving up the Golden Fleece and instead plotted how he would destroy the Argonauts, who he considered to be marauders bent on plundering and pillaging his kingdom. As for Medea, it suddenly dawned on her that her father knew she was the one who had helped Jason and that he would eventually be coming for her to exact punishment. So she stole out of her room and out of the palace and made her way to Jason in the depth of night. She revealed the truth to him. Aetes would never give him the fleece of his own accord. She said that she would take him to the grove where the fleece was located. Jason thought about it and asked, what about the giant unsleeping serpent that guarded the fleece? Medea said that she could solve that problem too, provided that Jason not forget his vows to take her to Greece as his wife. The hour was late, and Medea led Jason down the dark path towards the huge oak where the fleece was hung. But the serpent, with his sharp unsleeping eyes, had seen them coming, and now confronted them, stretching out his long neck and hissing terribly. The high banks of the rivers and the deep recesses of the forest echoed with the fearsome sound, and even those far away felt the fear in their hearts. Babies, sleeping in their mother's arms, were startled by the hiss, and their anxious mothers, waking in alarm, clutched them closer to their breasts. The monster, in his sheath of horned scales, rolled forward his interminable coils, like the eddies of black smoke that billow from smoldering logs. But as he writhed, he saw the maiden take her stand, and heard her in her sweet voice, invoking sleep the conqueror even of the gods, to charm him. She also called upon the night-wandering queen of the world below to aid her efforts. Jason followed behind, full of fear, but the giant snake, enchanted by her song, was soon relaxing the whole length of his serrated spine and uncoiling. Yet... His grim head still loomed over them, and its cruel jaws threatened to snap them up. But Medea, chanting a spell, dipped a fresh sprig of juniper in her potion and sprinkled its eyes with her most potent drug, and sleep 
fell upon the beast. The serpent subdued, Jason leapt up and grabbed the glittering fleece that shone through the darkness, the object of his quest now in his hands. Together with Medea, they made their way back to the Argo. The Argonauts were stunned by the beauty and radiance of the fleece, which rivaled the thunderbolt of Zeus in its brilliance. All of the toil and trouble they faced to get here now seemed worthwhile in the presence of so wonderful an object. They wanted to touch it, but Jason held them off, noting the danger of delay. Aetes was surely rallying his troops, and they needed to make haste to avoid a fight. So they returned to their places at the oars and started to row. Aetes arrived with his countless forces, and in full armor they stormed toward the shore, but the Argo was already a sea. They were too late. Aetes thundered in anger, raising his hands to Helios and to Zeus, and calling them to witness the treacherous deeds of his guests, and threatening his people and his own son Absyrtus with punishment if they did not bring his daughter Medea back to him to face retribution for what she had done. The Colchians immediately prepared their ships to pursue the Argo, but we'll save the events that follow for the next episode. Before we bring this episode to an end, let's take a close look at Jason's successful retrieval of the Golden Fleece a little more closely. In Apollonius's version, which is the one that our narrative has been following, as well as the earlier version of Pindar in his fourth Pythian ode, it is Medea who plays the starring role in saving Jason's bacon. But if we look at some early Greek art that is roughly contemporary with Pindar's poem, we find Jason getting the Golden Fleece without Medea's help, and there are a couple of really bizarre scenes on some ancient vases. On our website, manto-myth.org, you'll see an image of a vase that was found in Sicily, which was colonized by the Greeks, and is now housed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. It depicts a nude Jason leaping gracefully towards the fleece as it hangs from a tree with the goddess Athena, the patron goddess of heroes, in the center of the frame, seemingly directing him to the object. To the right sits the Argo and another Argonaut. Neither Medea nor the serpent is anywhere to be seen. The artist may simply be emphasizing Jason's heroic nature and so keeping Medea out of the picture, but it also may be reflecting a traditional version where Jason accomplishes the deed by himself without the help of the king's daughter. Another vase presents a scene that is my absolute favorite piece of ancient art because it's mysterious. It's housed today in the Vatican Museums, but was originally found in a tomb in Trevetri, an Etruscan city of the dead in Italy, a few hours north of Rome, and is spectacular for its spectacular finds. The vase is probably a few years earlier than the one in New York, from about 480 BCE, but it is vastly different. In the background is the fleece hanging from a tree with Athena prominently depicted in the right foreground. Dominating the scene in the left foreground, however, is a very strange sight indeed, one unparalleled in the written literature. A giant serpent, mouth wide open, with a drooping Jason hanging halfway out, arms dangling as if stunned or worse. How do we know it's Jason? Well, the artist felt compelled to write his name underneath his listless body. You can see it if you look closely. The scene it's depicting, however, is unclear. Is Jason dead? Is Jason being eaten or disgorged from the serpent's belly? If the former, perhaps he's trying to get inside the beast to kill it from within. We know from one ancient source that Heracles did just that in one episode. If he's being disgorged, perhaps he's been swallowed but used some drug to have himself thrown up, which might befit a hero whose name means something like healer. 
Regardless of the situation, Jason with his blank stare and listless arm show that the hero is definitely not in control of the situation at that precise moment. We may in fact never know exactly what the scene is depicting, but one thing is clear from these early vases. Medea is not part of the picture. Well, that's it for another edition of the Greek Myth Files. We hope you've enjoyed following the Argonauts as they travel from Greece to the distant land of the Colchians as much as we have making the episode. There are a lot of people to thank for helping us bring it all together. As always, great thanks go to our voice actors, AJ O'Neill and Julia Summer. And our sound engineer is Samantha Coutier, whose steady hand and ears make the episode sound so good. And we have new music this week. Our opening and closing music remains Brooklyn Tea by Jared Sims, but our transition music is from our outstanding student musician, Jack Anderson, a humanities major who likes to read Dante in the original Italian and Latin stuff as well. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. <laughs>